You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Ben. That was great. It's always fun. Todd and I worked together at South for about a year on Wednesday nights, the Todd and Barry show, I kind of call it. It was always a joy to minister with Todd as a brother. But my name is Barry, and I'm one of the Bethel pastors out at our Henderson campus, and it's my privilege, always a privilege and joy to be here with you on Sunday mornings, and thanks, Clint, for the invitation and the opportunity. And uh, first, I want to apologize for my voice. I'm a bit hoarse this morning. I contracted a chest cold about a week ago. I'm coming out of it, but it, it makes me, actually, it's good. It makes me sound like I actually have a manly voice. Normally, I'm very high, whiny voice, so that's the one good side about it. But if I uh, cough a little bit, I apologize for that in advance. Today, the Bethel Bible churches are continue with our verse-by-verse study through the book of Joshua. This morning, we're in chapter 1, verses 10 through 18, and I'll go ahead and read that portion of Scripture now. Joshua chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over, armed before your brothers, and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise." And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Let's pray together. Sir, we thank you for the opportunity to continue to worship you now through the study of your word. And so as your living word, your perfect, your inerrant, and your living word is taught and received, we pray, we beseech you that we would personally hear from you through the power and person and ministry of your Holy Spirit. In advance of this, we thank you in the matchless name of our Joshua, who is none other than Jesus Christ, Yeshua, our Messiah, and all those in agreement said, Amen. Well, according to the great historical work by a man named James Usher, he's an author of this incredible historic work called The Annals of the World, also known as the Usher Chronology, in which he goes over the history of humanity from the date of creation to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. According to that great work of his, the year we're studying is the year 1451, and it's springtime of that year. When I teach historically about the Israelites and their, their lifetime, I like to kind of ballpark their timeline for the congregation. So I want to do that now. And again, this is just ballpark. The numbers are not exact. 
But if you go by this ballpark, you'll be in close range of the Israelite history. So roughly the year 2000 BC is when Abram, Abraham comes on the scene. 500 years later, we're looking at 1500 BC. That's the time of the Exodus. 500 years later, we're at the year 1000 BC. That's roughly the time of David and Solomon, the United Kingdom, the United Monarchy of Israel. After that, we lose the 500s, which are really nice, and we take off, lop off about 400 years, taking us to roughly the year 600 AD. That's when Jerusalem is destroyed and the people of Judah are taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. Then chop off another 150 years. We're at the year 450 BC. That's when the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt. Again, this is just ballparking it under Nehemiah. And then within a couple of decades, the Old Testament is closed out with the writing of the book of Malachi. So, 2000, Abram, Abram, Abraham, 1500, Exodus, 1000, David, Solomon, 600, the destruction of Jerusalem, 450, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and then shortly thereafter, the closing out of the Old Testament. But let's go back to the date at hand, springtime, somewhere around the year 1451 BC. Moses has died, and Joshua is now in charge of the Israelites. Previously, under the leadership of Moses, that always feels like the old show 24, previously on 24, but previously under the leadership of Moses, the Israelites had defeated the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan in the areas of the Golan Heights of Israel of today and the plains east of the Jordan River in the country of Jordan of today, north of the Dead Sea, yet far south of the Sea of Galilee. These lands had historically belonged to the defeated kings, the Amorite kings, Og and Sihon that Moses and the army of Israel had defeated. And then the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, these are the, some of the Israelite tribes, had petitioned Moses to be given this land as their ancestral home east of the Jordan. They had petitioned of the Lord for that, and the Lord had agreed and had granted this land to those tribes. Now, what was the reason for that? Well, they were experts in cattle and livestock. They had tons of cattle and other livestock, and these lands were wonderfully suited for livestock. In fact, if you're ever able to go to the Golan Heights of Israel, and I'll be able to lead a tour up there next year, it's beautiful cowboy country up there. I love that place. And it's not unusual to actually see Israeli cowboys riding around on their horses herding cattle up there. It's kind of cool. But now, back to the day at hand, roughly 1451, springtime of that year, we're 25 miles north of the northern tip of the Dead Sea in what is now the nation of Jordan. The Israelites are camped out east of the Jordan River on a deep, lush, fertile plain nestled between the Jordan River to their west and the steep mountain ranges of modern Jordan of today that rise behind them, right behind them in the east, in what will this land will eventually become the ancestral home of the Israelite tribe of Gad. Some of the Bibles that we have have the, the maps in the back, and you may see that in the back. We're talking about the ancient tribal portion of Gad. Now, the mountains of modern Jordan rise up aggressively behind them, and if we're looking eastward from the Israeli side, we see before us in those mountains directly before us, and if you're looking with my eyes toward what would be Jordan to the east, as those mountains go on to the south farther than we can see, that is the ancient territory of Moab. That's Moab directly across from us and extending to the south to about halfway down the length of the Dead Sea. Past that to the south, and we can't see nearly that far because there's a bend in the river, but 
halfway down the Red Sea, uh, Dead Sea, on those mountains to the south, is the ancient mountainous territory of Edom. And now we return to our original location. We're looking across at the mountain stronghold nation of Moab. To the north in those same mountains is the ancient territory, mountain territory of Ammon. And so who are these people? The Edomites farthest to the south were the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau, so distant cousins of Israel, while the Moabites, from whom Ruth will come eventually in the Bible, and the Ammonites were descended from Lot and his two daughters in that wonderfully sorted chapter of Genesis 19. And although all of them are distantly related to the Israelites, none of them like or appreciate the Israelites or is happy or happy to have them back in their neighborhood. To set the stage again, we know from the book of Joshua that it's springtime because the Jordan River is running at flood stage. That means we're in the spring, we're getting rain far up to the north, and also probably where the Israelites are as well. But it also means that as the, the temperature rises, the snow on faraway, beautiful, amazing Mount Hermon, which is in the far north of Israel, the mountain is so high, probably the mountain of transfiguration. It actually has snow on it much of the year. There's an Israeli ski resort up there in an alpine village. It's really nice. They share the mountain with Syria, although not in a friendly way. They all spy on each other up there. But the snow's melting. The rain's coming down. Jordan is flood stage, so it's very dangerous to cross. Now, here as we look from the west side over across the Jordan, it's quiet here on the west side of the Jordan River. And why is that? Because the people, as Rahab will show us next time, are extremely nervous about the fact that the Israelites are camped out across the way and are ready to come across the Jordan, although they don't know how they're going to do it because it's flood stage. But they're all shut up in their cities and everything's quiet. My guess is, though, that on the east side of the Jordan, it's a little bit different. It's probably quite celebratory on the east side of the Jordan, meaning that the Israelites are excited. And why are they excited? Because their decades of wandering are over, and it's time to inherit their permanent home. And so Joshua, now as we saw last week, has been commissioned by God to lead the Israelites after the death of Moses. So let's get right into it and go into verses 10 and 11. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, excuse me, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And please um, excuse me for a minute. So after God's pep talk with Joshua, which was last week, verses one through nine, Joshua, to his credit, wastes no time in carrying out the commission that God has given to him. And we can learn from that. When God gives us something to do, we do it. When he tells us to do it, how he tells us to do it. So he quickly gathers together all of the tribal leaders, and he tells them, in essence, at least this is how I picture it, because it's a huge camp, some nearly 2 million people probably in the Israelite camp. He tells them to go through their respective areas of their camp, their tribes, probably using their lieutenants, and alert all the people that after four decades of wandering, it is now time to enter the promised land and take possession of it. Take possession of it. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Sounds clean. Sounds wonderful. It sounds clinical. Go take possession of the land. But we know what it means. Taking possession means that they have to remove the promised land from those who currently possess it. And that's going to mean war. That's going to mean battle. That's going to mean sieges. That's going to mean killing. That's going to mean destruction. And I hope that as we study our Bibles, if we're serious about it, that should bring up some legitimate questions in our minds like, hey, Barry, is God okay with that? 
And he buried, didn't God command the Israelites not to kill? I think I remember reading that somewhere. Well, let's look into the first question first. Is God okay with that? Now, as a Bible teacher, that's the easiest one to answer because obviously God's okay with it because he's commanding them to do it. As for the why he's commanding them to do it, we'll come back to that in a little bit. But for now, let's go on to the second question. Didn't God command the Israelites not to kill? And of course, this is a reference to the sixth commandment found in in Exodus 20, verse 13, typically translated as you shall not kill or thou shalt not kill, but which the ESV correctly renders, you shall not murder. Now, why is there some confusion about whether it's kill or murder? The answer to that boils down to a really simple concept. In ancient Hebrew, there was just one word that covered both of those ideas and also the idea of manslaughter, which means that when you see the the word that's translated from that, so as murder or kill or manslaughter, we have to look at it in context to see how it should be used, that word. Is it speaking of murder or is it speaking of killing or is it speaking of manslaughter? That's no different than how we approach any passage of the Bible. We always approach it in the context in which it was written first and then branch out from there. And as we do that, as we look at the context of the Ten Commandments, now the Ten Commandments, I do not want to downplay or underscore their importance. God wrote Ten Commandments on stone with his finger. That's essentially underlining them, bolding them, italicizing them, everything he can do to get the world's attention to what he's saying. So the Ten Commandments are of tremendous importance. However, the Ten Commandments as important as they are, are a small part of the greater law of Moses, or the law, the capital L law, I call it, which essentially begins toward the end of Exodus and carries all the way through to the end of Deuteronomy. That is the great law of Moses, and the Ten Commandments is a small part. And as we look at the larger context of the law, we see that within the law itself, the Israelites are commanded to institute capital punishment for murderers, for blasphemers, for other serious criminal offenders, etc., which means that the idea of you shall not kill doesn't apply in all situations to them, and it is up for us to divine when it is appropriate or inappropriate. So, again, more questions. When does it apply? When is it okay to take a human life? These questions, I firmly believe, are best answered by backing up from the human earthly perspective and then taking a look from a higher altitude. I call it the satellite view. What's the view? What's it look like there from the satellite view? Well, it's crystal clear clear, and it's simple and it's easy to remember and it is this. God and God alone is the author and patent holder of human life. God and God alone is the author and patent holder of human life. He He thought up the idea himself, and he created us with the power of his spoken word. We exist because he created us. And as the author and patent holder of human life, God and only God therefore has the right to dictate when human life, this thing that he authored and is the patent holder of, may or may not be taken. We are not able to make that decision. Only he is. 
And as the author and patent holder of human life, by the way, God doesn't ask our opinion on the matter. Are there people who have opinions on the matters? Do governments have opinions on the matter? Do people on the right have opinions on the matter? People on the left have? Absolutely. I don't care what everybody else says. I want to know what the author and patent holder of human life says about the issue. He simply gives us instructions. He doesn't ask us. What he does is he simply gives us instructions in his inerrant and perfect and infallible word as to when human life may legitimately be taken by another as follows. And there are four instances. So when are the times that the inerrant word of the author and patent holder of human life tell us human life may legitimately take it? Number one, we've already looked at it. It's the idea of capital punishment for murderers and other serious offenders. When did that idea begin? That idea began right after the great flood ended in Genesis 9-6. Here's how the NIV renders it. Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds human blood, whoever takes a human life, by humans shall their blood be shed, by other humans shall their life be taken, for in the image of God has God made mankind. So we need to kind of put that into context. This, by the way, is the institution, the very beginning of the idea of human government. There was no human government before Genesis 9-6. In fact, we were allowed to live with the fallen condition in complete, without human government in any way, shape, or form. But and that did all the teaching necessary because within 1,700 years of the creation of humanity, God had to hit the reset button on planet Earth because we had devolved into such darkness, such evil, and such violence that literally there was nothing good left upon planet Earth. It only took us 1,700 years. So when Moses or when Noah and his family get off the ark, one of the first things God says is, no more murder. And anyone who murders, therefore, their life is going to be taken. And so this is the institution of human government. Human government to govern just means to limit. If you've ever gone to the old go-kart rides and the fun centers, or when you're a kid or you take your kids or our grandkids, we do that. They have governors on those things. The governor limits the speed for safety's sake. So to govern means to limit. So if we think of human government as human limitment, then we understand then, now we understand, if it's human limitment, that every power, every ability we give to government or every power or ability that it takes from us is a human freedom lost and is a human freedom that will be lost forever until you take it away from that government by force. This is why God, I believe, was not in a hurry to institute human government on earth because he created us to be free creatures, but the sinful nature proved that it needed limiting. And so that's where human government came in and, but now we move to the why of government. Again, I don't want to get too much into government this morning, but the why government exists is also there in Genesis 9-6. It's in 9-6b where God says, for in the image of God has God made man. The image of God is the most, I believe, the most important concept to understand about humanity that you will find in the Bible. The first mention of humanity was done uh, together with the first mention of the image of God, the ideas are inseparable, yet, sadly, we know so little about the image of God in us. Don't want to get into that again this morning, except to kind of encapsulate that as best I can. And to encapsulate the idea of the image of God, I like to turn way into the New Testament to Philippians 4, 8, where Paul says something to this effect, and I'm probably reverting back to my old NIV on this, but Paul says, 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things and the God of peace will be with you. That's what I believe encapsulates the image of God. Those things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, excellent, admirable, and praiseworthy. Things without which life on earth would not much be worth living, but where these things survive and even thrive, life on earth is definitely worth living. And understand that we are fallen sinful people and the fallen nature that we have is always at war with those things that are true and noble and right, pure, lovely, excellent, admirable, and praiseworthy. Not only that, but we have an ancient enemy, the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the one Satan, the devil, who is the one in charge of this world's, I call it the evil cosmos, this world's way of thinking and way of arranging its affairs, is absolutely opposed and absolutely hates any last aspect of the image of God and is doing everything it can to drive those things that are true, noble, right, good, lovely, pure, excellent, admirable, and praiseworthy into extinction. I believe that's what happened before the flood, that all of those things were virtually extinct with the possible exception of the family of Noah. And God wants to keep that from happening again. So the image of God must be protected. That means that government is to be the champion, government is to be the hero, government is to be the defender of the image of God to ensure that the image of God not just survives on earth but creates conditions under which it may thrive and those things that are true and noble and right and good and excellent and admirable and praiseworthy thrive in our midst. We also see that in Romans 13, 4, that famous passage in Romans 13 on government. Paul says this, for he is God's servant. He's speaking of the Roman soldier who carries his sword with him. In essence, the same, although the Roman soldier was military man and police officer, it's the same idea as the law enforcement of today. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword, the ability to take your life, for nothing or in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we see that in the inerrant word given to us by the author and patent holder of human life, that capital punishment for murderers and serious offenders is one way where human life may legitimately be taken by another human being. What is another? The idea of necessary and justifiable war. Not going to build this case from the scriptures much this morning, only to say that that's almost the entire book of Joshua in a nutshell. And also, it encapsulates much of the life of David as he works to unify the monarchy of Israel. What are other times that the inerrant word of the author and patent holder of human life says human life may legitimately be taken by other human beings in self-defense? Again, in a nutshell, this is much of the book of Esther. The Jews are in exile, scattered throughout the 127 provinces of the king of Persia. There arises an enemy of them, a man named Haman the Agagite, who entices the king to put out a decree that says people can rise up on a certain day and annihilate the Jews from existence. Well, Mordecai and Esther find out about that, and through great faith and prayer and fasting, they petition the king to redress this wrong, and he gives them the right to stand up and defend themselves on that day, which the Jews throughout his empire do. They rise up and defeat their enemies on that day because God was with them. The idea of self-defense also comes to us from the New Testament in Luke chapter 22, verse 36b, where Jesus says this. This, by the way, is his last night. This is the night he's betrayed. And he says, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak 
and buy one. Now let's talk about that a little bit. It seems to me as best I can tell from the context of that verse and from my understanding of the Gospels as a whole that during the three years that Jesus was with his disciples and the band that traveled with him, it seems that according to his word that he supernaturally protected them. No one got run over by an out-of-control drunk chariot driver. No one's kids got, no one, no one's kids got trafficked to another nation. There were, no one was murdered. None of the ladies were raped or molested. He supernaturally protected them while he was with them. And he says as much in his prayer, his high priestly prayer in John 16 and 17. However, what he's telling them now, he says, I'm going away and things are going to change. And I am going to leave you to survive in this fallen world and to deal with this fallen world from which I have protected you. You are now going to have to deal with that fallen world the same as everybody else. I am not going to, I'm making no promise to supernaturally protect you from harm. And when we think about that, that only makes sense. Because if Jesus promised all his followers to supernaturally protect us from harm just because we were his, the entire world would put their faith in Christ just to have an easy life. And so what he does is he leaves us to experience this fallen world the same as the unsaved do. We are not super promised any supernatural protection from thieves, from robbers, from murderers, from bandits, from anybody. But what we are given, thankfully, is his inerrant words, which gives us the purest picture of what humanity is really like, what planet Earth is really like, what those who are enthralled with the idea of evil and the violent ends to which they will go to pursue their evil, we understand that and we can take precautions. That's why we at Bethel Bible Churches have safety teams and, uh, and for that very reason as well, because we understand the world in which we live. And so self-defense is one of those ways. And then what is another way that uh, the inerrant word of the author and patent holder of human life says that human life may legitimately be taken by another human being? And this is a tricky one, but it's the idea of manslaughter only by way his word makes an allowance for manslaughter. Murder is killing someone with malice aforethought. Manslaughter is accidental death. And so this comes to us by the way of the establishment of the cities of refuge in Israel, which we'll see later in the book of Joshua. If someone accidentally killed someone, the Bible gives the, the example of someone's, they're chopping wood, the axe head flies off, it strikes someone in the head and kills them. Well, right away, the avenger blood is going to be on my tail because I just killed a brother or a cousin or somebody. So their nearest, closest male relative is, is required now to hunt me down and take life for life. But I can flee to one of the cities of refuge in their claim sanctuary. There would, a trial would be held. And if it was found that it was indeed an accident, I was allowed to live, although I had to live in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. So those are the four. An allowance is made for manslaughter, self-defense, necessary and or justifiable war, and then capital punishment for murderers and other serious offenders. Before we move on, one other aspect of this whole idea must be looked into for our study to be complete, and that's the idea of national judgment. National judgment is when God uses one people or nation to judge another people or nation, which is, again, what the book of Joshua primarily deals with. It is the national judgment on those people currently in the promised land, and the marching orders for this national judgment come to us from Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 4a, where Moses is speaking. He says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, 
and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They don't mention the Otisites, but I'm sure they're there too as well. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. And make no misunderstanding about what that means. That's every man, that's every woman, that's every child, and that's every animal of these seven nations. Complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. We must understand as we talk about the idea of national judgment that this is an area where only God can operate. We, as we individually, personally, or we nationally, we are not in any way qualified to make such a judgment. And so understand, though, that this idea of national judgment is absolutely not random in any sense of the word. And what I mean by that is these seven nations have it coming to them, as I will outline. The sinfulness of these people has been growing century by century by century, and God has finally had enough, which most likely means that the image of God is virtually extinct among these people. There is nothing that survives of what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, excellent, admirable, and praiseworthy. And so here's what God said, had said about these people four centuries earlier. We go back to a day when God is making a one-way blood covenant with Abram in Genesis 15, 12 through, verses 12 through 16. This is the smoking fire pot scene. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. We're talking about Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here, your descendants, in the fourth generations. And here's the clincher. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God is not random about this. After centuries of his patience with them, their iniquity is now complete. And he will deal with them using the armies of Israel. And I hope, in my mind, that raises another question. And I hope it does in your mind as well. Have they been given warning? I like the idea of fairness. I like the idea of fair play. Is God being fair with these people? Is God, as Abraham challenged him in Genesis 18, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Well, of course he will. Have they been given warning? Well, I say yes, a hearty yes. First of all, they all know what God did to Egypt 40 years earlier, as, again, Rahab is going to testify to us in the coming chapter. We also know, as, as followers of God, as lovers of his word and as students of his word, we also know that God loves all people, not just the Israelite people, not just the Jewish people. God loves all people. And we know that in the distant future, he's actually going to send a Jewish prophet, a guy named Jonah, to the extremely wicked Gentile nation of Nineveh slash Assyria to turn them away from their sin. And surprisingly, amazingly, they do for a time. We also know from the book of Genesis that God himself had a personal relationship with a Gentile king 
in the land of Canaan. This is King Abimelech, or Abimelech, as we like to say, in Genesis chapter 20. He was a Philistine king, and it seemed that he had a personal relationship with God. He was not at all surprised when God spoke to him or God uh, ministered to him in a dream. And he was warned personally by God about taking Sarah into his harem. And then finally, it's good to remember as we're getting close to Rahab, I like to call her Rahab the former prostitute, it's good to remember that Rahab repented of her sin and of her ways and of her God and put her faith and her life and her trust in the living God of Israel. And she and all of her family were welcomed into the Israelite nation. In fact, she ended up marrying a prominent young man of the tribe of Judah and is listed proudly in the genealogy of Jesus Christ our Savior. The rest, all the rest in the land of Canaan, with the exception of Gibeon, as we'll see later, the rest of the people will dig in. They'll cling to their sin and their vile behavior and war with Israel in order to keep to their evil ways, and they will lose. Incidentally, though, later in Israelite history, the Israelites themselves will be subject to this same judgment. So after the time of the United Monarchy, which was again about the year ballparking, 1000 BC, just seeing if anybody was listening. There's going to be a test on this later. 1000 BC, in the time of the grandson of David, the son of Solomon, his name was Rehoboam, the Israelite nation split in two, into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel will be nationally judged by the Assyrians and will lose their place on earth. Sometime after that, the southern kingdom of Judah will be nationally judged by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar in roughly the year minus 400, 600, that's right, pass that test again, and will be removed from their land for 70 years. A great place for a topical interlude with all due respect to Drew Carey who had that show, Whose Line Is It Anyway?, Let's talk about whose land is it anyway, because we're looking at a people that's coming from outside and going to push a people out of their land and claim that land as their own. Whose land is it anyway? Or sub-questions, is it finders keepers for land? Or do the first people to find and inhabit a land get to call it their own forever? Let's talk about the original human exploration and settlement of planet Earth. It began after God confused the language of humanity at Babel, forcing everyone to the far corners of the planet. Now, humanity, again, as soon as they had come off the ark, the family of Noah, mostly speaking to the sons of Noah and their wives, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, had been told to multiply and fill the earth, to spread out upon the earth and fill it with humanity. But they eventually, a guy named Nimrod, encouraged everyone to stay close together, and he formed this one world empire on the Mesopotamian plain. That's Genesis chapter 10 and 11. So they disobeyed the word of God. He confused their language and made them spread out upon the earth. But when he had given the original command, fill the earth, multiply and fill the earth, when he, had, he, he, he didn't tell them, he didn't say, Ham, I want you to go south and I want you to go east. And Japheth, I need you to go west and north into the area that one day will be Europe. And he didn't say, Shem, Shem, I think the Middle East is good for you. Why don't you just hang around here and your descendants hang around there? That's not what happened. Their descendants simply went where they went. They explored, and when they found a place they liked, they settled. So then, whose land is it anyway? The answer, this comes from both Scripture and history. I don't care so much about history as I care about Scripture. But the answer is this. You can call a land your own if you occupy it and can hold it by your strength. 
That's what the scripture teaches. You can call a land your own if you occupy it and can hold it by your strength. Now, on a teaching note, only Israel, the Israelites of all peoples and nations on earth, only they were deeded a portion of earth anywhere. And that's, called, that's why we call it the promised land. It was promised to them. But even they are still held to this truth. You can call a land your own if you occupy it and can hold it by your strength. And that's still true for the Israelites today. Now, I don't say this to encourage more land wars on planet Earth. We've certainly had enough. But just to deal with the reality of the situation. The reality of the situation is, is this is a fallen planet populated by fallen human beings. And fallen people want what others will have and will take it if they can. And so what it boils down to is we need to be stronger than those who would take our land from us. Now the question becomes, how do we remain strong? We remain strong as a people, any people. I believe that the defining chapter of Scripture regarding this principle is found in Deuteronomy 28. Now, to be sure, the exact idea of Deuteronomy 28, God is speaking to the people of Israel who have been given his law, his word, and they're told, if you keep my law, if you keep my word, I will bless you, you will be strong, and you will live in the land. If you turn from my word... I will curse you, you will be weak, you will be overrun, and you will be sent into exile. That's specific for Israel, but the truth of it, the, the wider idea of the principle applies to any people, anywhere, at any time. And it is this, if you want to keep your land, you must be a strong people. But if you want to be a strong people, you must have God's blessing. This is the ideas of Deuteronomy 28. If you want God's blessing, you must be a good and honorable people. And if you want to be a good and honorable people, you must be a people who love and honor God's word. And if you want to, if you, uh, want to love and serve God, then you must love and honor his word, and then he will make you strong. That's the way it is. So let's back that up. If you love and honor God's word, you're going to be an honorable people. If you're an honorable people, you're going to have God's blessing. If you have God's blessing, you're going to be a strong people. And if you're a strong people, you're going to be able to occupy your land and hold it by your strength. That's the idea. If not, well, all bets are off. Now think about that for a second. How scary is that as our own nation gallops toward embracing, embracing pure evil in our time? And I, I minister in California for a long time, and they... That those who run the state there are absolutely given over to evil. They despise everything that is true and noble and right and good and excellent and admirable and praiseworthy. They are headlong rushing toward hell. We, if we're not careful, we are going to lose our land in the future. Now, speaking of dwelling on your land, two and a half Israelite tribes are already dwelling on their land east of the Jordan, and Joshua needs to deal with them. So verses 12 through 15 we go. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. 
Back in Numbers 21, the army of the combined tribes of Israel had defeated, again, the two powerful Amorite kings, Og and Sihon, east of the Jordan. The tribes of Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh, had, seeing that the land was greatly suited to livestock, had petitioned the Lord through Moses to be given the land, and the Lord had given them the land. The Lord had no problem with that whatsoever. That's Deuteronomy chapter 32. But it had been granted on the condition that when it came time for the conquest of the promised land west of the Jordan, that the able-bodied men of these two and a half tribes would cross over before their brothers and help them conquer the lands they were to inherit before returning to the east side of the Jordan. And these men of these two and a half tribes had sworn an oath to do so. And here Joshua is reminding them of that oath and of God's expectation of them. And I find their reply just excellent. Verses 16 through 18. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. They essentially tell Joshua, this is my paraphrase, Hey, Joshua, we're with you heart and soul, and we're with our brothers heart and soul. We will keep our word, and we will be the first to cross over this Jordan, and we will do for our brothers what they have done for us. Any one of us who rebels against you, Joshua, will be put to death for treason. We will follow your lead, Joshua. And here it is again, only be strong and courageous. And Pastor Clint did such a great job with that. I can just leave it there for now. So, and guess what? about these men. They kept their word. They kept their word heart and soul over the course of the many years of the conquest of the promised land. And to me, and look, there are teachers, there are commentators, commenters, whatever you call them. They're really hard on the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, saying they weren't true Israelites. They should have come to the west side of the Jordan. I don't see that anywhere in scriptures. I understand men think that and teach that, but I don't see it. They did so those lands with God's blessing. It fell within the lands that God had outlined for the much larger eventual land of Israel. And so I don't see that they were doing anything wrong. In fact, I admire these two and a half tribes because what they're doing and what they promised to do and what they then did in spending years west of the Jordan fighting for their brothers tells us that they are people, tells us that they are people of strong faith in God. Why, why do you say that, Barry? Because you, as a man, you don't leave your wives and your children alone on the east side of the Jordan under the shadow of the mountains where the people of Ammon, Moab, and Edom are looking down with dislike and sometimes even hatred, waiting for a moment of weakness to take over, to slaughter, and to rape, and to kill if you don't have absolute faith and trust in God that he is going to protect your wives and your little ones. So they are men of great faith. And that is why I believe Moses said, if you guys don't go over, your brothers are going to lose heart. Because these men were men of faith, warriors to a great degree. These are the kind of men you want fighting by your side. And fight by the side of their brothers they are going to do. So that's our verse-by-verse -verse portion for this morning. Let's get into our final thoughts which center around an interesting pattern in Scripture, what I call what God does and doesn't do. So again, a question. Why is it that God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, but then now he turns around and expects them to take possession of the promised land through struggle and warfare? What gives? Well, the answer is this. Typically, 
God does for us what we cannot possibly do for ourselves and then afterward commissions us to do what we can do for ourselves when he is with us in the doing of it. There are three great examples of this in Scripture. Creation, the Exodus, and salvation. Let's look at each in turn, the idea of creation. Regarding creation, humanity was, and still is, as much as some of the humanists may like to think otherwise, humanity was and still is utterly incapable of creating itself and planet Earth, so God did what we could not do. Having done what we could not do, create us and the Earth for us, he commissioned humanity as stewards of creation. Now, some questions. Could God take care of earth all by himself? Absolutely, yes. He'd probably do a lot better job. We have certainly have messed it up, haven't we? So could he take care of creation and planet earth all by himself? Absolutely. Or to put it another way, where did I go? Where did I find it? Does he need us to take care of planet earth? Not at all. However, he graciously allows us the privilege, and Clint spoke about this last week. He allows us the privilege of working with him to accomplish his purpose when he is with us. The second example is the Exodus. The poor Israelites, the beat-up Israelites, the beleaguered Israelites, the enslaved Israelites were utterly, utterly incapable of freeing themselves from mighty Egypt. So God did for them what they could not do. He reached out and with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he rescued his people from Egypt. Afterward, however, he commissions the Israelites to take possession of the promised land through struggle and warfare, something they could do with his presence and with his blessing. So again, the questions. Could God dispossess the promised land of its inhabitants without Israel's assistance? Absolutely, yes. Did he need the Israelites to drive out these inhabitants? Not at all, but he graciously allowed them the privilege of working with him to accomplish his purpose. The third example is salvation. Fallen humanity was and still is utterly incapable of saving ourselves from an eternity of, in hell, which is our absolute destination. That's, we can't do anything about it. So through the cross of Christ, God did for us what we could not do. However, having done what we could not do, he commissioned his church, capital C Church, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Questions? Could God take the gospel to the ends of the earth without us? Absolutely. Does he need us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Not at all. However, he graciously allows us the privilege of working with him to accomplish his purpose. And guess what? God never sets us up for failure, but for success. So let us be grateful for his salvation, which he accomplished for us at an infinitely staggering price and with great love for him take the message of our amazing and loving God to a world bent upon absolutely exterminating every last ember of the image of God from existence a world bent on exterminating from existence everything that is true and noble and right and good and pure and lovely and excellent and admirable and praiseworthy that's the privilege that we've been given, to hold the light forth into that world. I think as the scripture says, that we would shine like the stars in the universe as we hold out the word of truth to a crooked and depraved generation, a light-rejecting generation. We are the bearers of the light, and we take that. What a privilege has been given to us. 
And so it is my prayer for all of us that we leave here today. Two of these commissions apply to us. We are still human beings, and as human beings, we still exist under the original commission to be stewards of planet Earth. And do you know what being a good steward of planet Earth means? To see that the image of God not just survives but thrives on planet Earth. In Matthew 28, we were given another commission. It is the Great Commission to take the good news to the ends of the earth. Both of these God could accomplish without us, but in his graciousness to us has allowed us to join him in this work that he has prepared beforehand for us to do and to bring these great things to planet earth on his behalf. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.